another installment of Innovation Crush. It's me, Chris Denson, your gracious host. First, I'm going to start with a returning champion of co-hostage, uh, Z Holly. <laughs> Say hello, Z. How are you? Hey, how's it going? What is like number eight, 17? Where are I we? wish. Four? No, maybe three. Yeah, well, yeah, four, yeah, three, something, four something like that. Something like that. <laughs> um, started off as a guest. Now you, you know, just come back to, to rest me while, I'm <laughs> while, while we banter. Um, what have you been up to? How's, how's podcast life? How's innovation yeah. life? Yeah. Well, I think last time we saw each other, I was just launching my, my podcast, The Art of Manufacturing, yes. interviewing really awesome entrepreneurs uh, on their journeys. And uh, I'm actually just wrapped up season two, um, working on season three. So uh, things are going great. I should work smarter. I, I'm like, a, this is, I, there's no breaks for me. There's no breaks. <laughs> just, they're just all, it's all down, you know, it's all rain, rainy seasons for me. I'm kind of a novelty junkie, so I like to be able to kind of retool <laughs> every nice. once in a while. Yeah. I'm noted. <laughs> um, <laughs> in case you guys are tuning in for the first time ever, this show covers innovation, all things creativity, smart people doing smart things. And today, the buck does not stop. Say hello, Michael Gervais. Yeah, what's up? I'm, I'm sorry. I put the S on there. I shouldn't have done that. Well, I'm, I'm okay with it, but most people call me Gervais. Yes. It's, mm. like, it's like Illinois. <laughs> yeah, you, yeah. Ricky, Ricky Gervais <laughs> has, has changed that. No yet. relation. None. Uh, <laughs> um, and, and when we talked before, you went, you said you went by Mike. Is it Mike? Michael? What do you what do you prefer? Do you have a preference? What's your dad? No, I, yeah. Dad calls me Mike. Okay. All right. Yeah. I'll, I'll be dad today. Cool. <laughs> That's a little weird. <laughs> yeah. Different strokes, uh, almost literally. Um, but I guess for starters, why don't you give the, the folks a, a little bit of a one one on uh, who Mike Gervais is. Yeah, I, I, this is always a little weird, but I'll, so the way that I'll do it is maybe start with kind of the formal training sure. and then where that led me to, and then we can unwind as much uh, as you want. But the formal training from an educational path is undergrad psychology. That didn't give me enough to really understand what people are about. Master's degree kinesiology, because I was interested in how to apply uh, the insights and learnings of the greats, people that were highly skilled. I didn't quite round out enough of an understanding of the true human experience because kinesiology is a fancy word for how muscles work in action. And then back to school for a PhD in psychology, specialization in sport and performance, licensed as a psychologist uh, in California, and then really cut my teeth in where I was most interested in, which is high stakes and dangerous environments. So that that's kind of the formal path. And then what yeah. No, it, I was going to say, that, that's it? <laughs> yeah, no, no. Well, that, that's I mean, just, but, but you know what, it's funny you say that, because I learned a lot of theory and understandings, and that's all good stuff, but then as soon as uh, day one in the field, I realized I didn't know anything. And mm. so it's really the experience of rolling up your sleeves and getting in the trenches where the real learning takes place. It's just nice to have theory and stuff behind to be able to anchor to. What, like, what, this is just a, a question I was thinking earlier is why was this even a passion for you, right? It's, it seems like a very specific path, you know, even like kind of entering the workforce and coming back and like, you know, getting more education. But why was this the choice for you, you know, going into school? You're like, this is what I'm going to do. No one in my family went to school. So I was the first person in my family that went to school. And I think to, to answer your question succinctly is that my understanding, now this is retrospectively looking back, my understanding of how the best in the world work, and I mean the half of half a percenters, those that are right at the edge or tip of the spear, is that they're born out of some sort of pain. There's, there's some sort of suffering, there's some sort of embarrassment, there's something internally that has been difficult for them throughout their life, usually early on. Why else would they go to that extraordinary, extraordinary 
effort to become great. Right. And so that, so that doesn't mean that everyone's a psychopath on the world stage. That's not what I'm saying. But there's some real challenges that people have gone through to do the extraordinary things. And with that being said, what happened for me is early on, I, my craft of choice was surfing. And so I grew up surfing. And there was an incredible tension between what I could do when it was non-contest days. So when I was surfing, free surfing uh, with the guys, so to speak. And where'd you grow up? In uh, South Bay of uh, California. I was, I, I was born in Virginia, but then grew up in the South Bay mm-hmm. of California, uh, which is Los Angeles area. And so surfing like with the guys, it was fine. And I could do great things. It was easy. Then as soon as competitions took place, it felt like I couldn't connect my head and my feet. I felt like I was in a completely different body because my thoughts were completely different. And I didn't understand it. And then one day it was a contest. And there was a older man, I was 16 years old, or 14 years old, I think, at that time. There was an older man that paddled by me. There's only three people out in the back, which means like out in the ocean, there's about three people. The beach was loaded with people watching, judges, friends, family, all that good stuff. And we we had surfed together on a regular basis, free surfing, when there was non-contests. And he paddles by me and he says to me, Gervais, I'm watching you. He says, you got to stop thinking about what could go wrong. And I thought to myself, oh, my God, how does he know what's in my head? That, that's all I was doing. I was consumed. And you never saw him again. He vanished. Yeah, yeah, he literally. <laughs> right, yeah. But like a good competitor, he didn't tell me what to do. He told me what not to do. Right. Okay, but he was right on the money. And so that's when I started to really figure out, like, okay, there's some sort of important connection between how I'm thinking and how I'm able to do the thing that I want to do. And that set me on a path to work to understand that interconnection between mind and body. That's, that's amazing. Um, one of the things that you, when you said earlier, just kind of like coming from a certain set of circumstances and achieving greatness, I'm always curious as to whether or not you need that stimuli, right? Like, can you have a decent life, a decent childhood and still achieve, you know, I'll call it the Oprah's of the world or LeBron, whatever you want to you know, say. But is that possible um, to not necessarily have that stimuli and still achieve the same level of success. Yeah, yeah. Like, for sure, there's so many ways that people pursue potential. And most of them, though, most of them, there's a dark side component to it. It doesn't mean all of them. Like, But yes, there is something internally that is unsettling enough to do the extraordinary difficult work required, the nauseatingly difficult work required to be great. And, you know, there's a great saying that everyone wants to be great until it's required until greatness is required. It's really hard to lock in mm-hmm. at such a long, overtime pace to be able to do the difficult things. It's funny. I had Rodney Mullen on my podcast. And, uh, Phenomenal Steve, yeah, human. Amazing. And uh, he said, yeah, there's... Um, there kind of has to be something wrong with you. <laughs> same, same idea. It, yeah. I think I agree. Yeah. Like, it, uh, you just need some sort of, like, lack of reason, you know, for certain things or a naivete about, like, we were, we were talking about motorcycles earlier, and I was thinking about Evil Knievel. You know, it's just, like, over and over again, broken bones, even in skating, the high rate of failure, which, yeah. which is a great lesson for entrepreneurs or entrepreneurs or innovators. It's just, like, this high rate of failure, and you just keep going. Um, you know, I, I don't have a question there, but it, I just thought it was... <laughs> A really, really great point. I was fortunate to spend time in combat sports. And so there was a heavyweight boxing, the largest heavyweight boxing program uh, to date. We were trying to find the next great heavyweight and created a camp. It was with Michael King, uh, the late Michael King with King Sports Productions. And so we had Sugar Ray Leonard's coach and great coaches that were involved in the program. 
And so I'd ask the question, are you looking for an athlete that will fight out of inspiration or desperation? Hands down, you know the answer, desperation. And so why is the following question? It's because it's too hard. Those that are fighting at from inspiration, it's just too hard. And I don't want to send like a negative, you know, bleak picture. If you're not screwed up, then you're not going to become great. No, that's not it. It's just that what happens when you get tested? What do you really anchor to when you're getting tested? And that's, you know, all of us get tested every day. Yeah. And, and what do, so you literally test people and I would imagine in, in some, in some capacity. And what does, so what does your work look like on in sort of a day to day basis? Like what are the practicalities when you walk into a room and get ready to kick off a project? Like what are those few steps that, that get the ball rolling? But it's maybe, okay. So I, I want to slice that a little bit thinner sure. if, if we can, because there's three main laboratories that I work in. The first laboratory or bucket of activities, if you will, are around projects and those projects um, are tend to be sport related. Okay, so one, one right now is working with the Seattle Seahawks, phenomenal uh, organization, head by Coach Pete Carroll and John Schneider, the GM. Amazing working laboratory to figure out how these men are able to do what they do. It's it's amazing. The others the others in that bucket are Olympics and those types of projects, and some of them have really high stakes on them, and I'll, I'll talk about those later. But so that's one set of practices when I'm in those environments that's very different than the other two working laboratories. The, the other two is uh, intellectual property. And that's like, what does that mean? It's like developing ideas at scale. And so that's a very set of um, different skills. Using the craft, but more as um, through the lenses of how to do something on, for a business application. And then the third working laboratory is a small concierge uh, practice, a very boutique practice in Los Angeles where we've got a team of sports psychologists that see professional athletes. So with those three working laboratories, which one are you more interested in? Because each has a, like a different skill set. I like all of them, but I, what, what kind of um, uh, is, is amazing to me is the fact that you can work in these different bu- buckets with your same skill sets. Right. And, and how it applies from one group of clientele to another. So athletes to business owners. I'm curious about what the similarities okay. are. OK. Yeah, that's really cool. OK, so thank you. From a framework, <laughs> <laughs> from a framework, there's only three things as humans we can train. We can train our craft and every one of us has a craft. Some of our some of us have a craft that we're paid for and some of us have crafts that not are not paid for. OK, but so we can train our craft. We can train our body and we can train our mind. And that's it. Everything in the human experience falls in those three buckets that we can cultivate and develop, including relationships. Okay, so craft, body, and mind. So my particular training is on how to train the mind. And the fortunate part about that craft, if you will, if that is uh, where I put my work in, is that we our minds go everywhere we go. Everywhere that we take our bodies, our minds go. So it's always available to be cultivated, trained, enhanced, you know, to be massaged in some kind of way for optimization. So that's the craft that I bring into any environment or any room is how do we optimize or better said, how do we do some front-loaded training so that we go into an environment that has deeper challenge that will meet those demands at our potential. And so it's a front-loading of training, no different than the body. So we get that. We get that picture, right? You train your body so that you can go do something with your body later. We train our craft. We do all that lonely work to refine our skills, whatever that might be, if it's sport or anything else, so that we can be precise and we can repeat our our precision of action over time. And that's what the great ones can do. It's not that they can just drain a three-pointer 
uh, once in a while, they can do it in any condition, and they can do that consistently. So it's craft body and mind, and so I spend time thinking about how to optimize the mind. Uh, I would love for you to, to define the phrase lonely work. Uh, and I, the, the, one of the things with you, Z, I remember when we first talked before you were a guest on the show, you kind of painted this bleak picture. It was optimistic, but it was bleak that, you know, it was like you're an innovator is always sort of out on their own, like mm-hmm. ahead of the pack into uncharted territory. I don't know if that's what you meant per se, but what is that lonely work that, you know, you refer to? So the lonely work is all the stuff that only you can sort out and figure out. Okay, so you can, we, hopefully we are fortunate enough to have mentors or coaches or people that have been down the trail before us and they know where the cliffs are, where the alligator pits are. They know what is ahead of us. Now, but there's only things that we can sort out and that is the level of intensity and focus of training. That's, that's only for us. That's lonely work. It's just us that locks in at the high frequency that's required to become great, to be great. The second part of the lonely work is you can read knowledge and and you can read other people's ideas, but insight and wisdom are revealed from within. You have to earn it. Mm-hmm. And no, you can read inspired texts and be around gurus and sages on stage, whatever it is for you. Look at those Instagram posts with yeah, like they, positive it, quotes it, it, that, 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 that Einstein didn't say. Einstein sure did a lot of talking. Did <laughs> yeah. you actually do any work? You did Gandhi too. Yeah, yeah, Gandhi, exactly. <laughs> they are legends. Yeah, but you, we have to do the lonely work to reveal the insight and wisdom that we have within us. And when that takes place, the whole world is different because you see it differently. And that's the lonely work. And there's only three real ways to do lonely work. Um, mindfulness or some sort of meditative process where we listen without critique. Um, inspired conversations with people that have wisdom and they understand things at a deep level. And writing, you know, like getting your thoughts down, externalizing your internal hard drive so that you can see exactly how you think. And so those are three ways to better understand the internal experience. And they're hard. They're difficult. Mm. And I am an optimist. I believe that we can all do it. And I believe that we have insight and wisdom and greatness waiting inside of us to be revealed. And I think also, like, if I go big for a minute, that's what the world needs right now. Mm. That is what we need for each one of us to be our very best. And I know my loved ones want that for me. And I know that it makes my life better and their life better and people that they know that I don't even know. And so that's what the world needs right now is for us to understand how to attune to the inner experience that is authentic and real for us. But we have to train our minds to do it. Like we really, I mean, our minds are incredible, incredible pieces of software that most of us haven't programmed. And we're still at version two. (laughs) And I know I was at version one stuck there for a long time. And like we have version four or five, six. I'm still like Windows 95. (laughs) I know, yeah. Do you you think that it's uh, the biggest challenge is people who want to be at peak performance not knowing how? Or is it people who don't even realize that they should be doing what you're talking about? Well, yeah, because long ago, like not not that long ago in the 80s, 70s, 80s, 90s, even, even early 2000, is that psychology was this taboo little word for people that were kind of broken. And you'd pull your hat down and walk in the front door, and then there'd be a dark alley back door that you'd leave so nobody would see you. And there was a stigma around it because it was born out of the medical model, right? Let's find what's wrong and see if we can fix what's wrong. Then what we found is that there was a study of people that were exceptional, sport and performance psychology. Just study those that are exceptional. And we learned the tools that they use, the way that they see the world, the mental skills of how to generate confidence in any environment, how to generate a sense of calmness that's authentic to you in any environment, 
how to be deeply focused in the present moment, independent of the distractions, internal or external. And so when we study those, those are trainable skills. So we can all do better, right? But what do you do? What exactly do you do to train your mind? That is still left to be a mystery for those that haven't been fortunate enough to either train it or be around somebody like a sports psychologist or you know somebody that has a command of that. It's inter- yeah, it, it, the lonely work is interesting, and I'm curious, as, as, especially as to um, the idea of accountability partners. Like, I'm part of this 30-day experience right now. I'm on day 16. It's partially physical. You have to commit to something physical daily, and then we also do, like, reading, and then we not report back to each other, but we just share inspiration and things like that. So read, like, Steve Jobs' uh, Stanford commencement speech, and, you know, just kind of, like, every day there's something to do. Um and obviously, when I'm doing 300 push-ups a day, which is ridiculous, <laughs> it's, uh, it's like that's me by myself, right? Uh, but I kind of feel like I have this group here that, you know, I probably wouldn't have done 300 push-ups a day on my own. Um, what's the balance between the lonely work and, like, having a team around you to keep you going? Oh, you're on it because culture. We're Shout out to culture. Ryan Cummins from Omaze, by the way. Oh, yeah. uh, he's the guy who, who got me into it. So. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. So, <laughs> so what he's done is created a, a culture of people, right? So culture is, uh, long ago, culture, what we thought culture was, was words on walls, inspiring phrases and thoughts that were going to guide us, you know, whatever the team or, or the group is. But what culture really is, is the fabric between relationships with, between people. And so what you just what you just talked about is there's a group of people that are challenging each other, supporting, then challenging each other to go further. And that level of accountability is really important to be able to keep us and maintain us through the, the, the times that are hard, whatever that is. And so 300 push-ups, that's a lot. I'm sure you break them up like 20 at a time. Dude, one at a time, 300 times a day. (laughs) (laughs) That's a long way to get it. It's a really annoying process, but uh, I figure, you know, whatever way I can get it done, I'll get it done. That's good. Yeah, so, yeah, that's a culture. And so I don't know, um, everyone that I know that's had incredible success, they have not done it alone. There's a team. And success that's not shared is a failure. It's because there's so many people behind the scenes that, um, push and challenge and support each other in just the right ways to bring it about. So if I, if I put my marketing hat on, you know, it's like uh, we celebrate the individual. We celebrate the Elon Musk, the the person that we hear the stories from, right? And and I think there's a misperception about I need to do this on my own, or maybe it's just like okay, it gives you more permission to be alone, but not realizing that these people continually surround themselves with people who are inspiring or push them or investors that are going to be like pissed off if you don't perform to <laughs> to uh, a, a certain standard. So um, how do you, is does any of your work touch on the misconceptions behind greatness? Yeah, uh, I think one, we talk about the dark side a lot. There's a deep cost to pursue your personal best. There are, there are sacrifices. We can talk about that, but I don't want this to be too heavy and doom and gloom. But the mis- misconception is that you many of us think that we need to do it alone or that there's one star on a team. And if you're in a fabric of great teams, you know that not to be the case. And matter of fact, the people that inside of a team setting where it's all about them, they have they, they create problems for the culture. They create problems for you know consistent outcomes. They suck the room dry because it's all about them. And I haven't met a coach yet that says, man, I should have kept that a-hole longer. 
You know, I should have kept that person on the team longer because they were so good. And you guys know this from a business standpoint, the highly talented, the big time earners, the people that really command something special as an outcome. Sometimes if it gets ahead of them and that narcissistic, uh, needy personality type, we keep them too long, you know, because we feel hamstrung. What would we do without them? But, you know, over and over again, I've seen those people once they leave, the team bonds and the output is even higher. Group sigh. (laughs) Yeah. (sighs) So much better. Um, So I know some of your work, uh, client wise, Boeing, Microsoft, Zynga, you know, what happens when, you know, you show up (laughs) uh, through these doors? And also, you know, I kind of get the fact that this, you apply the sort of sports psychology methodology to these businesses. But I wanted to talk, talk on that, but also how they continue to implement it. Because I think we all get these touches of inspiration. Somebody comes in and yeah. does it like, a, you know, shows us some charts and some statistics. And then you go back to work, uh, you know, on Tuesday. You, you always know when the boss has been to one of those inspirational <laughs> things. Because now all of a sudden, he or she comes back and is like, we're going to do all these amazing, crazy, stupid things. Right. <laughs> and then it just kind of fizzles out. <laughs> yeah, great question. Because... Um, that's essentially the difference between motivation. The the word motivation drives me nuts, right? Like motivation only lasts moments. So I'm not interested in it. Now drive is very different. Like what are you driven by is very, very different. But the idea that somebody comes in and stirs up an organization and then leaves, we've got problems because that stirring up experience is um, sometimes just noise. So the idea is to uh, align, understand, or sometimes help cultivate the guiding philosophy for the organization. Like, what do you really stand for? What are we doing in this organization? What are you doing in this organization? And then what Coach Carroll and I, who's the head coach of the Seattle Seahawks, we've worked together for five, six years. I think it's been probably six now. And it was, I'll tell you a quick story. It was about four years ago when we're heading into our first Super Bowl together. And we're in the hallway up at the training center. Um, where the where the athletes and coaches work from, and he's he turns to me. We're about a month before going into the Super Bowl, and just out of nowhere, and he's got an incredible amount of energy. He turns to me, and says, "Can you feel it?" I said, "Feel what?" He says, "Can you feel like what's happening here? I mean, isn't this amazing? Isn't it special? We're so switched on. We're so connected. Like, can you feel this?" I said, "Yeah. Like, it 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 is exactly that." And then he pauses about a half a beat. That's all, that's all he ever needs. And he says, do you think anyone outside of sport would be interested in what we're doing? I paused about a half a beat, and he said, let's just write down what we're doing. So that's how we developed this um, curriculum. He is a master at switching on culture. Mm-hmm. He did it at whatever, whatever organizations he's been at. He knows how to switch on culture. He's got an advanced degree in psychology. It's not based on personality. His personality is phenomenal. But it's said principles underneath. That is essentially what you're asking. How do we switch on a culture that has sustained high performance? My stuff is how to train the minds of people that want to be great. Like, right. how do we do that? So we put those two together and created a um, eight-hour training program that turned into a 16-hour training program that turned into a four-week online course. And then what we've done, and that four-week online course, um, what's fun about it is we hired Olympians and sports psychologists to, del- to coach people inside of that four-week online course. So not only are you going to get stuff from coach and myself about how to train the mind and whatever, whatever, and then, but you're getting coached by Olympians and sports psychologists who have done very special things on the world stage. 
to train your mind. Then, so that's a four-week course, then after that, we provide an app for them to open up, and inside the app, it's, it's a reminder, a daily reminder of how to train your mind, the things we did on, over the four-week course, and the Olympians and sports psychologists are in there training you as well. So that's a 365-day training. That's tough, though, because if you have, how do you take people who are so at the top of their game and get them to actually break down in their minds what they're doing? A lot of times, people who are really talented don't understand what it's like to just be learning something. They want more. Those that want more say, okay, the frontier is how to train the mind. I want, I want that. Mm-hmm. And so then they say, okay, well, I could be more confident. For sure I can be more If I want you, okay, let's do this together. Where does confidence come from? Z. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not so sure. <laughs> no. yeah. Where does it come yeah. from? Like, is it important? Yeah. Let's start with that question. Yes. yes. It's like it's, the it, most it, important it's thing. It's said to be the cornerstone of great performance. So where does it come from? We're not taught that. In America, certainly we're not mm-hmm. taught that. Where does it come from? Well, and what's the difference between confidence and arrogance? That's right. It's, it's actually it's pretty, clear, pretty clear what the difference is. But where does confidence come from? Most people say past success. Most people say, you know, practice or preparation or whatever. That's not it. That's not where it comes from. That's a factor in it. But it only comes from one place, which is what you say to yourself. <laughs> and I've seen so many athletes, greatest of greatest of greatest, multiple, you know, gold medal winners, whatever it might be for them. And they change when they step over the line. And that change is not always for the good if they don't understand the mechanics of how to speak well to yourself to generate confidence. And so imagine being a multiple time gold medalist and then not having confidence going into uh, a game. How can that be? You've been the best in the world for a long time. And I learned that in uh, back to boxing again. Yeah. You know, so. Well, that's good, yeah, because especially in, in boxing or most sports or even just going to meetings, right? You might be on fire in one meeting, and then by the end of the week, you're like, I, I fucked that meeting up, right? Um, right? What is the self-talk? Is it Stuart Smiley in the mirror? Is God, it, or, no, 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 don't do that. But, you know, what, what is the proper cadence, right? Okay, like, so it's got to be... oversell to yourself? And, and well, so we have lots of conversations with ourselves throughout the day, right? Some are productive, some are not productive. And so increase awareness of what you say to yourself is step one. And so without awareness, we're kind of stuck in the water. The second is once you have awareness, that's just, that alone is not enough. Knowing how to guide your thoughts to thoughts that build you, that are based in real stuff. So your inner dialogue has to be based in I'm sorry, based in past success or the idea that you can do difficult things, which is future success. And that comes from a body of work and trusting your body of work. Right. But you can, like I said, you can have an incredible body of work. You've done amazing things publicly mm-hmm. or privately, and then you can give it away with two, three, four thoughts like, I don't know if I can do it again. And then that train of thought, that's a beautiful image, right? Train of thought. That train of thought can take us somewhere pretty nasty pretty quickly. Yeah. I'd love to ask about, the, uh, about leadership because we are talking a lot about the leader, the person who is um, supposed to be at the peak performance. Mm-hmm. But then, really, you're, we're talking about teams, too, and there are many different leadership styles. I think Pete Carroll has a very unique leadership style that, go, that really flies in the face of the stereotype of the strong leader. And I was wondering if you can talk about how that sure, yeah, is love, different and whether it works or not. Yeah, I love this thought. Um, okay. It's born out of, what I'm about to share with you is born out of the idea that authenticity is at the center of leadership. And so there doesn't need to, there is not one way to be a great leader. 
look at let's just look at the NFL for an experience. There's or an example. There's two iconic coaches right now, Coach Carroll and Bill Belichick, and they will go down as great coaches. Completely different approach. Both are authentically themselves. And so what happens for leaders is that they can have great ideas about how they want to lead or what they want to do or the fabric of the culture that they're trying to create. And at the moment that they are inconsistent based on the rules that they've set up, the expected rules, everyone else in the organization says, oh, so that's not real. So there's a different set of rules that he's playing on. What is that? And it's the consistency over calm events and hostile and rugged events where we're looking for the, the, the real gem of leadership. So that, that's what it starts with. So how do you know yourself? You got to do the lonely work. You got to really do that lonely work. And, I, you know, we challenge everyone to say, like, with as great certainty as you can, what is your guiding philosophy? What is your personal philosophy? And I, I can't tell you how many times we go to a large setting and, and five stars generals included in this and say, what is your philosophy? How many people have a philosophy? And there's a thousand people in the room and and four people raise their hand and then say, okay, great. So, okay, how many of you could say it right now on stage? All the hands go down. So could you get your personal philosophy out? This is a challenge to all of us. Could you get your personal philosophy out in a dark alley at knife point? And so it's got to be crisp. It's got to be well connected. And how are you well connected to it? You practice it every day. Martin Luther King Jr., we know his philosophy. It's all he talked about. It's all he thought about. And so if you can line up, this is a challenge, if you can line up your thoughts, your words, and your actions in any environment, you become masterful at your craft, masterful as a self, if you will. Lining up thoughts, words, and actions in any environment, that takes mental skill to do it. And, you know, I, I think the other sort of underpinning thing, thing here, especially in your work, is high stakes environments, right? You touched on it a little bit just there. There's two thing, two thoughts I'm having. One is, how do we know the difference between high stakes and, and, and not, right? Because sometimes you're like, oh, you panic and you freak out over something that you perceive to be high stakes. And you're like, once you get over, you're like, oh, that was, that was nothing. Or maybe it's just because you have the practice of a, a smaller failure behind you and like, each one you can, your capacity increases. Um, and then the second one is you use this phrase on your website, which was combat breathing. Um, and I wonder if those two, like, how do they relate to one another? So uh, you're right on the money. Okay. So first, first order is what is high stakes environments? Okay. So we need to deconstruct that thought and the person determines if it's high stakes or not. So you determine if it has high stakes and my challenge for as many people that um, of your audience that are listening right now is that let's take a look at your worldview. And if you think that there are big moments, big days, big games, so we can use sports. Sports is just a great example to learn about who we are. And it doesn't mean that it's the end all be all by any means, but it's a great kind of um, petri dish to learn about the human experience. So many people, if you've listened to ESPN, they'll say, oh, this is a defining game for such and such. This is a defining play. This is a defining snap. This is a defining moment. That becomes a problem because it's setting up this idea that if this moment is big, am I big enough? And what happens for most people is they become small. Now, let's look at it on the flip side. It is a true statement, and until you do the lonely work to really embrace this idea, this is the only moment we get. So this is the most important moment that we have together. And if we're deeply focused and engaged and present in our authentic self in this moment, and we practice that a lot, we have 1,440 
of those a day, if we practice those a lot, then we get really good at being present. And then no moment will ever define us. Now, you can make mistakes when the world is watching, but that's just information back on to you for your journey. And so um, that, so back to your original question, is that we determine if the stakes are high. That's an internal lens first. There are consequences that happen when you make mistakes on the world stage. Sometimes people die, sometimes loved ones die, and sometimes we just don't get a medal. <laughs> you know, so there are consequences on the world stage to making mistakes. And I don't want to um, belittle that by any means. But we determine if the stakes are high, period. That's great. Can I ask about, uh, so actually last, last time I was on your podcast, Chris, I, we talked about my, when I almost died skydiving. Yes, we did talk about <laughs> that. On your podcast too, Michael, I think. Uh, <laughs> So you did. I do believe yeah, that you were you coached Philip Felix Baumgartner in the Red Bull Stratos jump, and that no doubt whether he thought it was an. I mean, obviously he thought it was a defining moment, but it was high stakes regardless. When's your space jump coming up? <laughs> I mean, you survived the skydiving. Yeah, right. well, no, no one's invited me. <laughs> no one invited me. Good. I did thirty thousand feet. Now yeah. let's do three hundred. No one knows about the woman who jumped after Felix Baumgartner. <laughs> <laughs> so how did that uh, I'd love to hear about how that w- worked because you were brought in most of what you've been talking about is preparing yourself for the future front for, for conti- yeah, front yeah. loading continuous um, improvement preparation this is a very different situation right well, yeah I think yes and no um, yeah if just like any training and preparation if you wait until we're kicked in the teeth it's too late to start doing breathing training then right, right or self talk right. training then and you know uh, Tyson had a, has a great line. I love, I love it. This line. The, Go ahead. Do yeah. it. Uh, do it. No, do you it. do it. No, no, yeah, you yeah. do it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. Like, yeah. you know, it's, and so that's why we want to do front-loaded training. But I'm talking about mental training on this, on this behalf, how to train our minds to be disciplined and focused enough to be in the present moment, independent of the environmental conditions. And we know, that to, do, we know to do that physically. We train our bodies physically to be fast, strong, nimble, whatever, whatever. We train technically that same thing. Right? How to write well, how to speak well, whatever the craft of choice is for somebody. How to snap your wrist at one o'clock if you're a basketball player shooting a ball. And then, but the mental skills training is still wanting, right, at broad scale. So for the Felix Baumgartner project, the Red Bull Stratus, uh, just a quick asterisk, what a phenomenal experience in my life that was. Mm. To be around world-class professionals in aerospace that were at the tip of the arrow to try to solve something. This was not a thrill experience, mm-hmm. to try to solve something. What happens to a human when they need to eject mm-hmm. or want to eject, in this case, at 130,000 feet? Knowing that that human's gonna, without a capsule, is gonna pass through uh, the sound barrier. And, uh, no, I'm sorry, uh, will pass through potentially this, what am I, <laughs> let me be more clear. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll travel the speed of sound and potentially pass through a, a double sonic boom. Mm-hmm. What happens to the human experience? And, you know, maybe on our way to Mars, we need to know that. You know, maybe right. on our way to outer space, we need to know what happens. And this was such a... So there are high stakes all around, in a sense, right? Oh, yeah, like, and, in terms the, of... The, the, like, me- yeah. the medical director on this, this is how, like, real this project with the medical director. He lost mm-hmm. his wife in the Challenger. Mm-hmm. And so... He spoke at, our, at TEDxUSC, and he kind of reveals that at the end of the talk. Beautiful. And it's just... He didn't want to see that ever happen again, and that's what was driving he, it. He was all in. And yeah. okay, so yes, halfway through the project, or a little bit—I don't know—right around halfway through the project, they built an incredible capsule. They had the technology uh, was was pretty good. 
Felix was in great physical shape, and um, he raised his hand at some point. And this is all public. I'm not talking about anything that's not public. He raised his hand, so to speak, and said, okay, guys, I'm, I'm running out of mental kind of skills. I'm afraid. And so I think that's really important for all of us to get right to the edge of our capabilities and say, okay, I'm out of my depth. I want to keep going, and I don't know how. I know it's not going to be from training my body better. I know it's not going to be from training my technical skills better. How do I train my mind so I can be more present, more still, so I can think clearly under pressure? Teacup. And um, so we went to work. And that, I mean, the, the story wrote itself, and it was just a phenomenal, he went to work, I should say, on how to train his mind. And it was, it was phenomenal. That's great. It, 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 think clearly under pressure. I think if, uh, the one thing, sorry, the one point I was, I was thinking about there is, A, you've got somebody at the top of their game, right? And, you know, uh, Andy Walsh was a guest on the show, and, you know, a lot of his work is pushing people to their peak performance, physiologically, scientifically, mentally, et cetera, et cetera. And one of the questions I asked him was like, who pushes you to your peak? If you're sitting at the top of this hill mm-hmm. and, like, casting vision down, in a sense, what's the next level for you, right? And, and so... How do you, and he even like he said it's something that he struggles with, and I think some of us we do get to this point where we're like, yeah, we've kind of achieved a certain amount of success, but then how do you even recognize what's next? Or you know, it's get, lonely at the top. Yeah, yeah <laughs> it's, it's true, and like you want to outdo you, like you you have a personal desire to do more of whatever it is, but you may not be able to readily recognize it. Is there a mechanic in the in, in your work to kind of push and discover the next plateau? I think that we've got part of this model wrong. And the model is that I need to do more to be more. And that's born out of this fast-paced, rapid, you know, iteration world that we're in right now, that we need, the thought is that we need to do more to be more. And that's not, it hasn't worked. First, we, we started down the path of multitasking. I need to literally do more in this moment to get more done, and then I'll be more. And, and that doesn't work. We know that multitasking is, the cost of multitasking is about a 40% reduction in productivity. It's a problem because there's no such thing really of being able to multitask um, with two new pieces of information. We can't read a book and have a conversation at the same time. It does not work that way. And so the idea that we can multitask um, in business on a regular basis, what ends up happening is there's a cost to the human interaction, the relationship. If I'm checking my Twitter or I'm answering an email while I'm having a conversation with you, I'm marginalizing you as a human. So the idea of do more to be more has created great cost for people. We are more separated now in a digitally uh, transformed world than we've ever been. So the model is to be more so that you can do more. And the being is where that next apex for me is. So how can I be me more often? I need to know who I am and then train my mind to do so in any environment, rugged or, or otherwise. And so I think that that is the answer for the next maybe three, four, um, 40 years, right? Is like, how can we be more? And that, so I just want to be around people that are pushing the apex of um, how to be authentic more often and do great shit. Like that, to have those two things in common. Um, it's almost switching gears a little bit. This is going to be the most difficult question, I think. Um, this all sounds great. Can you measure it? 
Right, like, you know, have you used tools or technologies to actually go like, the, uh, is, is there some sort of quotient or, you know, is, is there a mechanic that you've discovered that you can kind of measure the results of your work other than the outcome, right? Obviously, which is, oh, I did, I did it. <laughs> but then there comes like, the, what are those incremental things where you're like, okay, you've, uh, you're getting there? Great question, because the, the outcome is a big part of the measure, but it's only part of it. You know, did I do it? Did I survive? That's part of it. Did I win? Congratulations, Z, you did it. You did it. I did, I'm here. You are here. Did you land on your butt or your feet? I landed on my feet almost in the maintenance yard, actually. (laughs) I had the reserve open, which was really nice. The next jump was quite challenging. (laughs) (laughs) Well, actually, what you're saying about the fear about accepting the fact that you're afraid is a really important one because. Well, then you can do something about it. Yeah, and I was afraid. I didn't want to do, uh, you know, I didn't want to jump again. And then um, I, I have to admit, uh, across the airplane from me, in, in the airplane, uh, was, uh, what's his name, from Jackass? Oh. Um, Johnny Knoxville was learning how to skydive. And I have to say, he looked kind of terrified. I thought, if Johnny Knoxville can be afraid of skydiving, it's okay if I'm afraid of skydiving. So... I think it's okay to acknowledge that. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, you know, so I'm, I'm, I'm gonna, all survival, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, I know you have your question. I'm yeah. going to go back to it. Yeah. Fear is essential because yeah. it, it's a signifier that you're at your edge of your capability. And the only way to really get better at becoming better is to get right to the edge as, as mm. often as you possibly can. But that's really hard. It's really hard to do. And it requires such internal resources to get to the edge that we need to be equally skilled at great recovery protocols. So when we, if we really want to get after it in life, we're going to get to the edge as often as we possibly can. And then it's usually not physical uh, things alone. It's physical that tri- something physical that triggers vulnerability. And so, but that vulnerability, that emotional cost is so great that um, we, we're not recovering as society well enough. Best in the world are, are working their asses off. We talk about on the world stage recovery more than we talk about working hard. Mm. Every, almost everybody works really hard on a regular basis. Some are freaks. They eat McDonald's. They can jump out of the gym, you know, they, they, whatever. But they are genetic freaks. And others, yeah, you know, the rest of us, we have to get our recovery program right. Okay, so back to your, um, back to your thought about outcome. You, there are technologies that can measure change in mindset. We can't see thoughts. They're still invisible. Maybe not for long, but they're invisible for now. And so what we have is the artifact from our thoughts. So let's, let me deconstruct how this works. Thoughts precede emotions and body sensations, okay? They precede um, behavior, and they precede performance. So if we work up the chain, if you're just looking at your performance, how did I do, it's a little late. If you're looking at just your um, body sensations, like are you sweating or are you not, or are you sweating because you're emotionally erratic or are you calm, you're still a little late. We want to get up the chain of impact and observe thoughts. Only you can observe your thoughts, okay? But there are technologies that can measure the artifact of thoughts. We can measure our physiology through heart rate variability. We can measure our physiology by basic monitors that you can buy off the shelf that says, oh, okay, you've done this mindfulness training, you've done this confidence building training, you've done this breathing work, and your heart rate variability is better. And that heart rate variability, HRV, is an indicator. The more variability, the less stressed the organism is. So imagine if you're under great duress, like a fight or flight syndrome, your variability is like your heart just basically is bang, 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 bang. 
And then when you're calm, you've got that nice rhythm in your heart. And so if, if we find an environment that's stressful for you and your heart goes bang, 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 and then we go do some work, mindset work, right? And breathing, whatever the three things I just talked about, mindfulness, breathing, and some self-talk work. And then you go into an environment similar to that next time and you've got variability, you've had growth. So that's, we can't see the thoughts, but we can see the artifact and we can measure that on a regular basis. All that being said, you just know. Right. You just know that you're more There's calm. There's a gut to it all. You yeah, just yeah. know, you know, and so um, that there's no greater superpower than what our minds and our brains can do. There is no better engine and software than, than those two. How are technologies changing how you're doing this? What are you excited about? AR, VR? What, what kind of things are the most popular? Yeah, so let's, yeah, that, I love that question because GoPro changed the game, right? So we know that Mental imagery, the science around mental imagery is pretty strong. If you can see it before you can do it, not only does that kind of strike the word kind of, not only does that create a familiarity with you doing well in said environment, but it also increases the myelinization of your nervous system. And that's a fancy word for um, it creates the rubber tubing around the, the wiring in our system. And the fatter the rubber tubing, the better the conductivity of the, of the pathway. So if you've got more fat on your nervous system, you fire your wires better. Okay? And those that fire together, or those that are wired, those, <laughs> those that fire together, oh, shit, I, a, I know a, a tongue twister that rhymes with that, though. <laughs> what is that? Whether the weather be cold or whether the weather be hot. We'll be together whatever the weather, whether we like it or not. I nailed it. Oh, one take. That nice. was weird. That is really good. I was working on that with my 12-year-old yesterday. <laughs> Were you? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Practice matters. Yeah. yeah, so... That's the craft. I was confident. <laughs> so imagery first, and, but it's hard because it requires sustained attention and deep focus, and, and, and that's hard for us, uh, especially in the Instagram buzzing cell phone world that we're in right now. Okay. Then came GoPro. And GoPro is like, whoa, you can see other people doing great things in real time, like as fast as you can imagine. And you can take, take a look at the surf industry, skate industry, lots of industries. And all of a sudden, people got a lot better faster because they were seeing the great ones do things where our generation, we had to wait for the magazine to come out 30 days later or the film feature, which was three months to produce. So we were three months behind of innovation um, when the, from what the greats were doing. Now it's real time. So a kid can see someone do something, you know, GoPro, whatever. So what's going to happen next is VR and AR are going to put people in those experiences without danger. And so the rapid level of learning is going to, you know, take off. And so, but well, that, they, that's still a ways away right now. And that also gets you into like your, the ability to change the world because the exponential learning and then application becomes greater, right? Because everyone's going like, okay, I, I kind of get it and, I, and I'm willing to take the leap. No, no pun intended. Um, That's right. Now, I will still say that AR and VR are going to be great tools for what? For imagery. So imagery, greatest level of imagery is that you flood, using your imagination, you flood your internal um, theater with something that feels and looks and smells like it really is or it might be in the future. So you don't need AR and VR right now. You can w look at the conditions in your mind through imagination and put yourself in it as if it were real and you lay myelinization. Myelinization. 
pile and sheath. Let's just whether the weather be cold. <laughs> whether, whether be cold. <laughs> yeah. So, th- so that's that's one way to do it. Right, and, and that's available to us all right now. There's yeah. no cost to it other than the cost of a disciplined mind. All right. Yep. Last but not least. Okay. Um, complete this phrase for me. Ready? Everybody ready? I'm ready. I think. You know. You know what this is. Yeah. Innovation to me is ideas that other people have not yet witnessed. Great. Cool. Creativity is new to you, and I think innovation is new to others. That's, that's I love well that. said. I'm stealing that. Well, I can't steal it. We I, just you just said it. No, no, I learned that from from a guest of mine. Oh, <laughs> yeah. So she said it, and I said, "Oh my god, that's brilliant!" Because that's a, you know Tina Seelig. And really quick, uh, good segue. Tell us a little bit about Finding Mastery. Podcast. Yes. I love it. Um, it's been a blast. Thank you for uh, asking about it. It's So it was my postgraduate training where I wanted to look, continue to learn from best in the world that I hadn't met. And so there's no one on my podcast that um, that I've worked with. And that, that's a bright line in the sand that I've drawn. And so it's a postgraduate learning from best in the world, people that are on the path and exploring the path of mastery in their own lives. And they're exceptional at what they do. And literally, we just spend uh, long form just like this, and we deconstruct um, what are they searching for, what is their psychological framework, which is how they understand how the world works, how they understand how people work and their craft works, and then the mental skills that they use to build and refine their craft. And so we got a whole swath of people for everything, every craft that you can imagine. And I'm excited. I'm learning a lot. And hopefully, you know, folks are doing the same. That's brilliant. Uh, how much does it cost me to just call you and talk every morning and yeah. just get a pep talk? Ten minutes. That's all I need. I just need ten minutes. Uh, no. so, so, so I love that because we fired up minutes on mastery, which are you can you don't have to learn from me. You can learn from the folks on the on the podcast in three minutes or less. So we take their pearls of wisdom, and it's another podcast called Minutes on Mastery. And I mean, it's a great one, right? Because it's bite sized, it's snackable, mm-hmm. and it's these pearls of wisdom. But you, I don't think we can get to those pearls of wisdom in like a three minute conversation. Right. Like I, I'm not good enough to get to it to say, give me everything that you understand yep. in three minutes. But then through long form conversations like this, it just kind of naturally happens. Well, thank you for joining us. My it's been pleasure. Great. Yeah, my We're pleasure. So Thanks, thanks guys. Where yeah, can people really cool. uh, find you and uh, find more of your online-ness? Yeah, so the online stuff is fun. Uh, so the, the website for Finding Mastery is findingmastery.net. Um, Coach Carol and I, our venture is competetocreate.net. And um, social media is at Michael Gervais on Twitter. And that's G-E-R-V-A-I-S. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, Instagram is at Finding Mastery. Awesome. And thank you, Z. So great to be here. Great yeah. to see you all again. Yeah, really cool. Fun. Everyone, this has been another installment of Innovation Crush. And we will talk to you next time. <laughs>